Welcome back to the Fit for Golf podcast. In this episode, I am joined by Mike Schofield. Mike did his master's degree research on power development in golfers and his PhD research on the biomechanics and physiology of elite track and field throwers, which has strong relevance for golf. Mike used to also be a very keen golfer, being part of the New Zealand golf panel as a junior and holding a plus three handicap. He also has experience in speed training for golf, having increased his own clubhead speed from 110 to 142 miles per hour, which we dig into. Mike's knowledge and experience is of the highest level, and I hope you enjoy his insights. Just before we get started, a reminder that Fit for Golf has its own app. Golfers of all ages and playing levels are making huge strides in their golf performance, fitness, and health. There are programs to suit everyone, and there is an abundance of material to suit people working out at home or in the gym. Visit fitforgolf.blog forward slash app to find out more. You can get 20% off a 12-month subscription with the code FFGPOD. Now to Mike Schofield. Mike Schofield, thank you very much for joining me. You have a very early start in New Zealand. How are you doing this morning? Yeah, good, thanks. Yeah, good to be here. Mike, uh, we kind of came across each other on Twitter just from having, I guess, similar interests and following some similar people and topics and things like that. And we chatted a little bit. And when I learned a little bit more about your background and what you're doing now, I thought you'd be a really interesting guest to have on the podcast. Um, Do you mind giving us some insight into the path you took where you are now, your golf, your education and what you're currently doing for work? Yeah, cool. Um, so as a as a junior, I played um, golf up to a, um, I suppose, a, a national level here. So I think uh, best handicap I got to was about plus 3.2. Um, and at about 18, 19, um, I pulled the pin on golf. Um, and it was sort of, I suppose, part of the, the story is the rationale for pulling the pin on golf. Um we we here in New Zealand have um, relatively easy golf courses for for the most part, and and so getting to a, a plus three point two handicap is is not it's not overly hard. Um, the golf courses aren't overly long, um, the fairways aren't tight, just very limited water. Um, so I. I went and watched um, at the time Anthony Kim, um, Adam Scott, I think Hunter Mahan, and and there was one other in there, uh, Brant Snedeker, and they came and played an exhibition here in New Zealand. And what about the third hole was uh, I think it was about a carry of about two eighty um, yards over on par five, <clears throat> and at the time I, I kind of had swung it at about one hundred and four miles an hour um and jumping out of my skin probably about 110 I think I got to and so it's pretty slow pretty good short game um pretty accurate pretty good kind of course management but yeah I was, I was 18 at that stage and I turned around to my coach after watching them hit it 40 or 50 yards over this carry and just said oh, I can't do that um and I've got to make money in the next two years out of this game and uh, how do you compete with these guys when you can't even carry it onto the fairway, right? 
So um, at that point, I, I pulled the pin on golf. And as a young fellow, you kind of a bit, bit angry about it and sort of potentially hate the world for a little while. Um, and then I sort of, well, well, I kind of like this gym stuff at about 18, 19 years old. Um, well, I'm, I'm going to go and try and figure out how to how to hit it further. And I, I had great intentions at the time of returning to golf. Um, and um, so went to, went to uni and enrolled in a, a sports science degree. And the whole, my whole life for about three or four years was trying to figuring out how to, figuring out how to um, hit it further. So sort of through my degree, applying some learnings, experimenting here and there, um, I ended up getting to uh, one, 142 was the quickest I uh, got to on TrackMan. Um, and I sort of averaged uh, between 130 and 142 miles an hour for a little while and uh, decided to go and play a golf tournament just just to see what, what would happen. Um, and went back to the same golf course that I'd played years, what, six or seven years of golf tournaments at and um, ended up making 27 birdies in 72 holes um, just, <laughs> just out of sheer um, – basically – Basically, being so close to the green, how can how can anything go wrong? Um, and on on basically no practice, I think I shot four or five over par for the for seventy two holes. Um, and most most of the bogeys, etc., came from hitting it out of bounds. To be honest, um, but but yeah, no, I sort of went, oh, well, there's there's something in this. Um, and then I uh, went to leave university and sort of looked around and, and kind of felt like I didn't really know anything um, still. So I enrolled in a, in a master's and I did my master's in power development for golf. Um, specifically at that time, uh, one of my kind of biases was that weightlifters being the most powerful people, I perceived that to be the case anyway. Um, I became an Olympic weightlifter and um so I, I totaled 290 uh, in training at 85 kilos um, and I think about 296 at 96 kilos. So I got to at a sub-elite level um, in Olympic weightlifting, uh, so about 140 kilo snatch and about 160 kilo clean and jerk. Um, and so that was part of my kind of... Uh, pursuit towards trying to hit it real far. I was kind of trying to get to 150 mile an hour at that time in my life. Um, and so I did my master's in Olympic weightlifting and golf and um, and came up with a whole lot of testing metrics and validated a couple of um, testing modalities. Uh, one of them, I think I, I did the, the cable downswing, um, which I think I've seen you actually do on on uh, Twitter a couple of times um, and used that as a testing modality across time with a couple of participants. Um, so got a master's in um, power training for golf and then um, sort of sort of at, around that time I started working with a couple of long drivers, um, a couple of pro golfers 
um, along with my started coaching weightlifting, so a, a weightlifting squad too. Um, and uh, I had a couple of professional boxers in there too. Um, so kind of applying the same sort of principles that I developed over the, the sort of four or five years prior to that. Um, and we got some, some pretty cool results. Uh, ended up with one guy at uh, World Champs um, when sort of around the, around the Jamie Sidlowski uh, time frame. And... Um, and then sort of, sort of finished my master's and, um, was kind of in no man's land for six, six, eight months. Um, but, and still sort of felt like I didn't know anything. Um, and I got approached by a, a guy called Dr. Angus Ross, who's actually a good friend and a, and a mentor of mine, um, to do a PhD because I'd, I'd started, started dabbling in some throwing, uh, and as an as a strength and conditioning coach, uh, and then had track and field throwing, yeah. just for the people yeah. listening, yeah, yeah. And so we started to get some some reasonable results. Um, whether that was me or what else was going on in their programming at the time, I, I don't know. Um, but uh, Angus sort of said, "Do you want to do a PhD in this stuff?" And I was like, "Well, why not? Like, it'd be cool to kind of be the the." Uh, have have some more knowledge in rotational sports. So I entered a PhD um, and my PhD was in um, the kinematics and kinetics and kinematics of track and field throwing. So basically I looked at 3D um, throwing kinematics and um, some neuromuscular qualities in elite throwers over uh, an 18 month period. and so that was sort of of interest to um, our federation here. Uh, part of that, um, I started during that time frame. The the guys I was um, I was kind of studying. I started coaching uh, full time. So um, both doing the technical work and the the strength and conditioning work. Um, and yeah, so to where I am now. So I've got a squad of uh, five. Throws. I work with five individuals, um, ranging in ability from uh, kind of that sub elite tier um, through to to an Olympic type level. Yeah, that's brilliant. Um, really diverse background there, and definitely kind of um, rounds up why I thought you'd be such an interesting guest to talk to. I think one of the things that definitely I'm interested in, and probably a lot of the listeners too, is going from an average club head, club head speed of about 105 to about 135 is something that I'd love to hear more about. Um, what type of things did you do in your training? Um, how did the progression look in terms of, you know, did you get a lot very quickly and then the last bit was very hard and maybe some things that you learned along the way, things that you taught that would work that didn't work and maybe some surprises about what was really important. Yeah, so um, it's a it's a good question. Um, at the time, I was I was potentially a little ignorant to why I was getting quicker, um, but I went kind of down this pursuit of, uh, as, as most people do, just get strong as strong as strong as you can. Um, and uh, I was basically training three to four days a week uh, in the gym and just just heavy strength work. 
um, trying to trying to bench more, trying to deadlift more, trying to squat more. Um, and I, I think I deadlifted somewhere around two ten kilos. So I think that's about what four four forty in US. Yeah, about four sixty yeah. roughly. Yeah, somewhere somewhere around there. Um, and but I just sort of did a lot of throws and things, um, a lot of med ball throws, and and probably the thing that um, I, I'm kind of gifted to get quite strong deadlifting um, and benching. I've got relatively short arms. I'm relatively short. Um, and and sort of a, a little wider relative to my height than than I probably should be, um, and so I did a whole lot of medicine ball throws, a lot of jumps, um, and then just went to the driving range and just beat the shit out of fifty balls um, and try to jump out of my skin. And so there was there was sort of no art in the first um, probably probably the, the progression from 105 to 115, 120. Um, and probably a lot of it came came more so from the fact that um, I just started swinging harder. So I just, I just mm-hmm. the intent to swing a little bit quicker um, was, was there. And that was something that I hadn't, um, hadn't done before as a golfer where New Zealand, New Zealand back then was very technically orientated. So, um, I, I was really on plane with my golf swing, um, club face very neutral at the top. Um, parallel was, was the target and anything over was kind of the danger zone. Um, and that was sort of how we were coached. And then, um, the feet, the feet sort of had to stay planted and, and there was this big kind of emphasis around pivoting and um, but you couldn't lose the left side or lose contact with the left side. And so I kind of gravitated towards this kind of jumping type model where I, did, I think at the time it was popularized as like the power squat. Um, and where you, where you essentially squat down into the, the first half of the golf swing first half of the downswing and and sort of jump out at it um and clear the left side and so i just sort of ended up there by um beating the shit out of it for a for a period of time um and and then from there i went weightlifting um and part of weightlifting i would do the same thing so i would kind of hit my Olympic lifts, hit my, hit my squatting workout. And then I would do medicine ball throws and, and back work. Um, and I thought, thought kind of, Hey, I'll, I'll get to, to 96 kilos and boy, in time. Um, and I'll swing it really quick. And I got, I got much quicker early in that weightlifting phase from, from beginning to sort of mid through, um, a year. And, and then, and I think I got to probably like 142 then, um, somewhere around there, or it was around that time frame. And and I hadn't really become that good at weightlifting, um, but I was still doing a lot of medicine ball throws, a lot of overheads, a lot of jumps, um, sort of rotational throws, downswing type throws. Um, and same thing, just going to the driving range a couple of times a week and smacking the shit out of it. Um <clears throat> 
and so then I, I sort of went to from there I was like well I'll, I'll continue on up to um to 96 kilos and part of that was a weightlifting directive so um I am slightly too tall to be an 85 and so I went to to the 94s and 96s and so I trained at about 96 kilos um and I never got any quicker I actually came backwards a little bit I came back to about 137 and we were like I squatted 210 um deadlifted 240 I think I power snatched 122 power cleaned 140 um and and I never never got any quicker from there um and then sort of life took over and I went backwards uh, and so I've kind of been through everything that anyone had kind of ever uh tried in golf and and so before prior to moving to university um a lot of it was around the tpi stuff um around making sure that um the like there's mobility around this joint and you can do this pattern and um don't get too strong because you'll become inflexible and that was kind of the early advice i got and um i certainly didn't become too strong and I certainly, as I became stronger, I didn't lose any flexibility. Um, and so some of the misconceptions that were here early, I sort of disproved through experience, but also then now through education. Um, yeah, so there's, there's kind of my journey of clubhead speed. Yeah, no, that's, that's really interesting. What height are you, Mike, and what was your progression in body weight through those different periods? I'm 174 on a good day. Um, so about 5'9", 5'8", 5'9", borderline, yeah. yeah. Um, and I was about 82 kilos um, when I was, I was probably about 79 when I moved to Auckland. Um, when I started university at, at about 105 mile an hour, it's about 82 kilos probably at, at around 115 and about 85 kilos at about 142 um, mile an hour. And so my, I've, I've also, with weightlifting, I went up and down in body weight a lot. I dieted down to um, 82 again, didn't really lose any club head speed, and I've gone up to 96 and, and been at 138 mile an hour. Yeah, so was there much difference in your speeds? So I know you gained from when you went from about 79 to 85. Yeah. There was a club head speed gain in that period. Was there much of a gain in your max from when you went from the 85 to 96? No, I, I got slower at that point. Um, and okay. I, I got slower for a few reasons. Um, the target became... Uh, instead of club head speed, Commonwealth Games weightlifting. Um, okay. So that the the target shifted um, for me, but also the, um, the amount of energy consumed by someone my stature getting to 96 kilos is um, significant. So I was still going to the driving range a couple of times a week um, and – and still following a pretty similar schedule. Um, but 
I I had to spend so much time eating, so much time training um, because at at ninety six kilos and we were expected to be pretty pretty lean. Um, I it was a full time job just trying to maintain that body weight. Breakfast would take me an hour or so to eat and that kind of thing. Um, so it it was physiologically outside probably what my norm is. I mean, I, I sit comfortably now, um, training two or three days a week, not really doing anything at about 82 kilos. Yep. Uh, in those driving range sessions you were doing, did you have a radar for feedback about how you were getting faster or was it only kind of every so often you'd get to go on a, on a monitor? Because I'm not sure what years you were doing this training in and I know the kind of personal and affordable launch monitors have only been around in the last couple of years. So um, actually, interestingly, I, in that time frame um, from when I first started this kind of pursuit for about four or five years in, um, right at the start, I got a job at a place called the golf gym and the golf gym was this kind of, I mean, back then that was 10, 12 years ago now. Um, the golf gym was this revolutionary facility here in New Zealand that had a track man and um, six flight scopes. Um, and wow. so it was an indoor um, facility, much like you see all around the world now. Um, but it was the first of its kind here in New Zealand. And I was the um, receptionist there for uh, for four years. So quite Sunday when no one was coming in to play golf when it was sunny I would just sit and smash golf balls into a into a monitor so so I was fortunate in that I had a, a track man that I could use basically at my disposal um, and I would go up there to hit golf balls because um, it wouldn't cost me anything uh, being a, a kind of poor uni student that was the, the route to go to the dream <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it was the dream um, yeah so so that's how I I, I knew where I was all the time. Um, same monitor, same facility, and and that was with just standard range balls too. So um, I'm not sure what I would have been like um, with a with a decent golf ball. But um, I I remember hitting a um, a hole that I used to hit driver when I played a golf tour that golf tournament hole that I used to hit driver three wood and probably about 40 or 50 left over, I hit um, driver pitching wedge into. Um, oh. So I went, yeah, I, I started to to drive it in long drive competitions about uh, about 340. Um, and here at, in New Zealand, we don't really have hot and dry. We generally have like kind of boggy and, and wet. Yeah, yeah. And so most of the yeah. time I was carrying it around 340 and at long drive meets. Yeah, that's that's enormous. So Mike, by going through this yourself, and obviously you've learned more with your education since then, if you were going to go through this sort of um, challenge or goal again, or when you're working with golfers now who are interested in maximizing their club head speed, is there things that you would do differently? Or what sort of roadmap do you follow with golfers who are you currently working with golfers? No, I'm, that I'm are trying to increase their speed. I'm not currently just, just with the throwers. Yeah, I've, I've got a pro boxer as well that I work with. Um, but yeah, it's a good question. Um, I think the 
the thing that I suppose what I see around now um, is is a predisposition towards being super strong, and although that's not a not a bad thing because um, peak force relates to rate of force development. Um, it only relates to rate of force development in those late contractile windows. So the after about 100 milliseconds, the the relationship between peak force and rate of force development increases sort of exponentially. Um, but that early contractile window is is predominantly um, determined by neural factors, fiber type factors, some sort of interaction between stiffness and um, movement kinematics. And so I think when you're looking to get really fast, like anyone, to me, anyone, anyone can get to 120, 125 mile an hour and, and probably 130, 134 if you really commit time to it. And, and obviously mm-hmm. talking within the bounds of realism here, it, a 60 year old dude is, is not going to get to 135. Like if you're under the age of 35, relatively injury free, potentially above 170 centimeters, you, you can probably get to 130. Um, and, but, but getting to 150, 160 is, is sort of like um, formulating a bit of a race car where if you, if you invest time in um, training modalities that take away the upper end in future, you might end up really strong, but only at 150 and you might be capable of 160, but it's sort of like a, like a pickle, right? Once you've, you've turned it into a pickle, you can't go back. Um, and so you've got to be mindful of the, the future adaptations you desire to be um, apparent while you're creating the current adaptations. And, and so this is what we do in track and field. Um, and this is where a lot of my research has been where if you take generally strength training, so strength training will, will generally, uh, and I'm talking traditional strength training will generally have a a detrimental impact on fiber type. Um, it'll generally have an increase in penation angle, which is sort of the, the way the muscle fibers insert into the tendon and, and at times a, a reduction in fascicle length, generally the fascicle length stays about, pretty constant with strength training <clears throat> now fiber type is essentially your rev limiter so fiber type determines how many revs the engine can go to and penation angle is is how much um, of the force that the muscle or the contractile tissue can create is reorientated and and you you have this trade-off between penation angle and um, cross-sectional area and so at high penation angles, you, you lose a lot of force um, per, per fascicle because the, it's, a, it's a function of the trigonometry of the, the muscle geometry. <clears throat> so you might be really strong, but the muscle fascicles aren't pulling parallel with the tendon. And so per shortening of the, the contractile component, there's, there's not a lot of um, contractile velocity at, realized at, at the tendon. So you end up in the position where you're really strong um, and you can't create a lot of velocity. So you've taken away the rev limiter. It's pretty hard to get that back. Um, there's a few training modalities you can use to get it back, but not too many people want to do them. Um, 
so I guess I guess where I would start now is with a, a, a little more um, sports science back training modalities and and you look at eccentric training is popularized now but it's it's commonly it's done it's more tempo training where it's slow down um, fast up but overloaded down is where the the adaptations lie um, and that's where we see um, changes in peak force without changes in fiber type without changes in penation angle with increases in fascicle length and so fascicle length is a, is a determinant of contractile velocity and so we end up with this beautiful combination of muscle architecture um, that allows high contractile velocities high rate of force development because peak force relates to rate of force development but we don't lose the the rev limiter so we end up with high torque high revs and and potentially if if someone can go that route they open up the door to, to higher swing speeds um and and maybe 150 160 is available on a on a pretty regular basis um so I would change the the way that I went about it. I would start um, in a different direction. Um, I wouldn't start with forces force. I would start with what's yeah what's necessary to develop force at what velocity. And um, I, I suppose part of the part of the confusion with this approach is, is commonly F equals ma is given as a rationale to get stronger. Um, but that doesn't mean absolute force. It just means the ability to keep pushing at whatever velocity, which is force, but it's not peak force, peak force being strength. So force is kind of an arbitrary descriptor of two particles touching each other. But the reality of force in biomechanics is it occurs at different velocities and muscle being a, a, tissue that works on a force velocity profile where you decrease, have a decrease in force with increasing velocity. Um, we need to be kind of aware that peak force is just a component of the puzzle, but it's not actually the, it's not F equals MA isn't peak force equals mass times acceleration. It just means force. And that's across the, the force velocity spectrum of muscle. And we need to realize that to open up, higher velocities <clears throat> and so i guess my my pursuit would be a little bit more specific to the physiology necessary to swing really quick um yeah. there's a motor learning component there um so when you when you change the we talk about a lot a lot with young guys it's sort of an easy way to relate to it with with cars um <clears throat> so the the physiology is the engine um, the way you swing being the racetrack. And when you have a, a different engine on the same racetrack, it takes you a little bit of time to get used to how fast you can go around the racetrack and where you can push the corners and um, where you can hit the brakes, etc. And so there's a learning time of, of integrating the physiology into swinging. So you need to give what, what's known in um, sports science as lag time. So where the, the engine is ahead of the learning so I think as well there's there's a, a tendency to move towards specific movements um, and and that's good at times um, and within reason um, 
so I would I would be a lot more planned and a lot more longitudinal with my training. At that time, I was emotional and and sort of went, "These guys are powerful. I'm going to become one of them." Yeah, this looks cool. I'm going to become good at that. Now it's now I have a little bit more insight, hopefully, <laughs> into the um, underpinning physiology, a little bit more around the neurology, the skill acquisition components, um, and I would look to integrate all of them into kind of an interactive periodization model where um, where I progress towards where I want to be and and am aware of the future rate limiters for the the current steps I'm taking. Yeah, no, that that's that's brilliant. Um something I'd like to kind of follow up on for the people listening who don't have a sports science background is the idea of how let's just call it say general strength training can have detrimental impacts on maximum velocity mm. down the road. Like you were saying that the future adaptations because what, what a lot of people who begin training see, like a lot of people that I've talked to, is, you know, they're, they're pretty much untrained and they start essentially lifting weights and then they start either swinging speed sticks or, you know, just smashing drivers. Mm. And they, they definitely get a lot faster. And at the beginning, the increase in their force production from getting stronger is very beneficial on their club head speed. After a while, people tend to see that they essentially come to a halt. It's like it takes so much time and effort to get marginally stronger in the lifts they're doing in the gym that there's not really that much more transfer to club head speed. Whereas at the beginning, they're getting way stronger really quickly without even trying that hard. And they're seeing this beautiful return on what's happening with their club head speed, which is fantastic because... <clears throat> People should milk those gains for all, all they're worth while they're coming, basically. What you're saying is that people need to be careful with essentially how much they push this maximum strength envelope because there is not a perfect transfer from maximum strength to high-velocity activities like swinging. Yeah, and and so... Where it, where it becomes an issue is potentially not in that kind of middle zone of club head speed of the the one uh, one fifteen to one twenty five. That's 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 pretty easy place to get to. Um, and where it becomes an issue is when you're a, when you want to when you want to have available to you one one twenty five to one fifty. Um, and so some of the things you do now will affect whether that's available to you in future um, from a from a physiological perspective. When we start getting to the, the limits of contractile tissue ability, the, the type of that muscle starts to starts to affect you. So you get those early gains because because of that relationship between peak force and rate of force development. And so obviously yeah. golf swing is pretty short, increase in rate of force development, you can probably get to a higher um, velocity a little bit quicker and well what do you know you get you get a little bit quicker and then you get to the point where um, it's it's a it's a couple of hundred gram stick and you've got the desired rate of force development that you need um, to accelerate it to whatever velocity you need to within the time that you need and 
that's where those kind of um, plateaus exist, where, where people go, oh, I can't get any quicker. And so then you have a, a trade-off between the pursuit of more strength and still trying to maintain the skill acquisition component. And so as, as a general trend, what you see a lot is that people, they invest more time in the gym um, and they try and maintain the same practice schedule. And those are competing demands. So you have a finite amount of energy that you can expend. Um, some of the, the muscle regeneration takes a little bit of time. Some of the neurology takes a little bit of time to recover. And you're going gym in the morning, driving range at night. And if it's a big gym session, it takes away from the driving range. And regardless of what session that is, yeah. right? Like you look at um, when you when you look at the the difference between really fast and kind of fast swings, the, the kinematic qualities are not dissimilar. Um, and the major muscle groups that um, are getting expended in the gym are highly active in both. And so there is a, there is a competing demand there. And that's, um, that's kind of the interaction between those, those two um, training demands. And so then you, cause you're not getting quicker, as a general trend, people get a little bit emotional about it potentially and they try and hit harder. And so what they probably could do is either schedule it a little bit better or or shift the training um, training programming to a different area. And one of those areas that we use is detraining. Um, so if you look at some detraining literature, people bed resting fiber type increases with um, with a reduction in training. Significant reduction. Fast switch fiber type yeah. uh, increases. Yeah. So there's a um, a pretty well-known paper called um, Patton Jones, I think it was, Patton Jones 2001, which essentially showed 36 weeks of detraining and high-velocity force capabilities increasing. Um, and it's a, it's a well-cited phenomenon. And so you just stop training and fiber type will revert up and what do you know you've got the rev limiter back and that's what i was talking about before there's a select few methodologies that that enhance fiber type and with that you get a whole lot of detrimental effects in neurology and tendon stiffness and um, peak force but as a general trend you'll see a bit of a bit of muscle phenotype or a bit of muscle fiber type um and so that's that's one way to actually sort of break the plateau keep your your volume of high speed work so you're you're fast swinging but you reduce you reduce the volume significantly um so you might you might take 40 or 50 swings and when you're training per day and you might have four gym workouts um and that might go back to um one gym workout every 10 to 14 days and um maybe 10 to 10 to 20 swings per per session. So you might have a reduction in training volume of, of hundred percent. Who knows? It, it, it varies for everyone, but um, so the opposite can result in a better, a better outcome than, than what we think because of the adaptive profiles that exist with some of this, um, this detraining work. And, and that's what we do that's what we've done multiple times with track and field athletes is the reverse of what people think. Um, 
where we stop training. A big taper period, basically, like you're yeah. periodizing your 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 yeah. season so that people are getting to the training blocks that are deemed necessary. But then there's a huge reduction in load coming into when they need to be performing at their best to allow these beneficial adaptations come through from essentially a, a more rest, I guess, from from less less fatigue from training. Yeah, and, and I suppose it's, it's slightly different to that in the fact that we're not um, we're not necessarily tapering for an event, um, and so what what we're doing is actually um, using detraining as a methodology to shift um, physiology, and so mm. that that period probably needs to be a minimum of about six to eight weeks. Um, oh wow! And and then post that, there's a there's a learning and and lag time of that physiology being integrated into elite performance and a bit of a retraining period for some of those tendon and neural neural qualities. And so that's probably where I would look. I would be trying to, to structure my year around physiology um, because those, those upper echelons of speed will be physiology driven with neurology, et cetera. But um, it's less of a taper and more of a training modality or, or anti-training modality, I suppose you could call it. Yeah. Um, yeah, I know. Really good. Um, I'd like you to touch on what you mentioned in regards to overloaded eccentric training. Like mm-hmm. That's something that I've posted a little bit about this on Twitter, but I'm um, a little bit hesitant in, say, like how much I promote it because it's not the most practical thing in the world for a lot of people to do, like especially if they're working out at home or even if they're in a gym and it's also, you know, very high stress. It's not something that a, a beginner or kind of intermediate trainee can just start doing unsupervised, but can you tell us how that's different to regular training Um, how you like to implement it, like how you actually like to practically do it. And, and again, what, why it's, why it's not as detrimental to being able to, basically have very high contractile velocities in your muscle fibers yeah so so i suppose um the eccentric training there's this and i'm sure you're across it as well you, you look around on twitter on any social media platform and, and people are commonly talking about eccentric training um and they they have multiple definitions of it and um and then the definitions are broad so I suppose there's a difference between um, eccentric training um, for physiology and eccentric training for, for enhanced kinetic kinematic qualities in terms of like a jump. So so when you look at a drop jump um, and you, you look at ultrasound images, depending on the drop jump height will be depending on what tissue within that um, tendon, muscular tendonous unit you're, you're targeting. And if it's a low drop jump, it's, it's still an overloaded eccentric because gravity, um, and you, you're essentially, or if it, if it's above a maximal jump height, it's, it's overloaded. Yeah. Um, but you probably, what you find in, in an ultrasound of the, the Achilles or triceps complex is that, um, the, the actual muscular, muscular unit, isn't working in an eccentric fashion. It's predominantly isometric and, and the tendons stretching and recoiling. So there's an interaction between the, the range of motion 
the eccentric, um, the induced eccentric, and the adaptation. So there, there's a there's a broad range between that and a eccentric squat, um, where you go through a full range of motion and and you have some contractile tissue that that has to start moving. So um, when I'm talking about eccentrics, I'm I'm talking about for the purpose of this, I'm talking about a full range of motion overloaded movement. Um, and what that will cause within the, the muscular tendinous unit is the, the muscle fibers or the filaments within the fibers to start pulling apart, um, theoretically. And so there, there has to be a, a muscular lengthening to, um, to, account for that range of motion change. And that's where we see um, changes in, in fiber type, changes in peak force. Um, and depending on speed, so it appears that high-speed eccentrics um, have a, a more beneficial effect on muscle fiber type than slow-speed eccentrics. Um, and and there's potentially some, um, some kind of bandwidths that exist um, there's some repetition duration, rest durations that, that might exist as well if you're looking from a re- research perspective. Um, and so, so yeah, you're right. It's high stress and um, and we're looking at kind of a, probably about 120 to 140% of their con- concentric maximum. And, and so if you take a traditional squat, you're probably only overloading about half the movement because the – the amount you can squat from the bottom or from the sticking point below um, will be less than what you can squat at the top. And so if you're looking at a full squat, probably from about 90 degrees down or or depending on flexibility um, is where you're actually getting a, an overloaded eccentric. Uh, and you can do it with weight releases where they detach when they hit the ground, etc. Um, and so it's... For whatever reason, that eccentric contraction promotes um, different hormonal markers and, and a different set of cascading um, sequences. And so those cascading sequences are the, the bit that cause a change in fiber type <clears throat> as a result of that training mode. And so we don't actually know why that occurs um, from a research perspective, but it's very different to concentric training. So there's a maintenance of fiber type with eccentric dominated training and a and a reduction in fiber type with concentric training. So sorry, eccentric training is a is a maintenance and concentric training is a reduction. <clears throat> and no one can no one's really figured out why that um, why that occurs. And and maybe there's a metabolic factor there. Um, fiber type concentrically appears to be regulated by a by a um, by calcineurin, which is a a factor that relates to calcium, and calcium causes muscle contraction. So, with muscle contraction, you have calcineurin, and then calcineurin downregulates fiber type. Who knows? That's potentially one mechanism. Um, <clears throat> how we do it here, we're pretty we're pretty lucky. We've got a a giant innovation department, and we have a whole lot of um, bespoke equipment that we can use. Um, but we've, we've also used weight releases. Um, I've got a video of me standing on top of a a Smith machine, pushing down on the bar. Um, and so it's as, it's as complex or as simple as you want to make it. Um, we've done 
like yep. a, a Nordic hand drop to a push up where they've gone two up, one down, and a push up. Um, yeah. <clears throat> so it, it's Th- that's something I was going to ask about for. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, something I was going to ask for like the the most practical way that I've found to do overload eccentrics in in a, just a regular gym setting are one limb down, two limbs up. Yeah. So an example would be um, doing a split squat uh, down to pins mm. in the squat rack. So it's prim- primarily the front leg is being loaded on the way down. And then I use two legs to squat back up, basically. And for it to be an overloaded eccentric, the weight that I'm using in the lowering on the split squat has to be a weight that's greater than I can split squat back up. Yeah. That's that's the whole point to get the overload. That's why I have to use two legs to come back up to the top. And I've done it in a Smith machine on a bench press where I've done uh, one arm down on the Smith machine in the bench press and then put my other hand on the bar at the bottom to help me push back up with two. Yeah. Would that have similar yeah. um, like adaptations, you think, to using something like weight releasers? Yeah, it, it's um, those those adaptations are are quite similar with those movements, and so you see like like a ham drop um, or a Nordic drop, pretty pretty good, mm-hmm. um, just mode of of eccentric training for the hamstring. Um, no real yeah. equipment you need it. Um, you can do it in a squat rack, or you can do it on a bench with a, a weight belt around your ankles or a partner holding them. <clears throat> um, yeah, you can do it the same thing with. Um, someone as simple as a push up and someone stands on your back and pushes you into the floor. Um, yeah. And so those are all things that the two up one down stuff is good. I, I think there's a potential that um, the actual strain on the tissue isn't as high with some of that stuff because there's a balance component. And so you only can apply as much force as you can stay balanced with. Um, yeah. And so we, we often try and take away some of that, um, stability demands yeah some of those regulators of, of force um be it balance or anything like that where you're very secure and all you can do is push um yeah and then so we, like a leg press one limb down two limbs up yeah. versus a split squat or something like that yeah. might be beneficial yeah and so we can get probably get to a bit of a my thinking i've got no data on it but um my thinking there is probably you take away the, the stability element and you can produce higher force um, at a for definite yeah. at a at a fascicle level um, and if we can produce mm-hmm. higher strains at that kind of more um, intricate muscular level we probably get some of those adaptations to come through a little bit clearer um, the anything co- too coordinative um, I think is is good for eccentric training but potentially not good for the as good as what um, some of that more isolated joint stuff is for the adaptation um yeah kind of absorbing some of those high forces and highly coordinated movements is, is very good um and you look at the top of the backswing there's a there's a high eccentric component to that probably um where the where the lower body is kind of loading the downswing you've got a the lat getting on stretch you've got the probably some sort of loading happening in the wrist um the what happens on the right side is probably pretty critical to how the, the path or the, the plane of the club reorientates um, or, or orientates. And so there's a, there's a high eccentric force component there 
that determines the skill. But the 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 necessity to try and train that is more of a skill-based thing than a physiology-based thing. Um, so we would be looking at training each component of that or interacting um, muscle in that pattern separately and then together in a motion like that so that we can train some of that yeah. kind of coordinated yeah, no. ability. No, that makes sense. Like you're trying to get as potent a stimulus on the tissue as possible with the training. Yeah not water it down by trying to be too complex with the movement yeah. because the more complexity and coordination that's required in the movement the less you can overload the tissue um and vice versa the more simple you make the movement like for example like a and a good example might like might be the leg press or even like a a two leg up one leg down leg extension or something like that, where you basically have no options for how you move. Yeah, it's just overload on the tissue. Correct. Um, a, a nice way too. I just thought of so for practical gym settings, um, and I, I'll, I can post some videos of these. But the one limb down, two limbs up, and then another way that's useful for if you want to try and get some of this eccentric stress on some of the tissue that's involved in rotating things, like the obliques on cable pulleys is to almost drag the weight into the finished position. Like you can essentially use a full body movement to get it to the finished <clears> position <throat> and then try and control it in in a more strict fashion where you're just using your obliques as much as possible. Yeah, and, and some of that stuff as well, <clears throat> you've got to be um, kind of recognized, especially in some of that rotational stuff that um, the the dynamics of how the oblique tissue works and, and the spine and rotation um, they're predominantly vertical as well. So I, I think the orientation of the, the oblique is kind of like 60 degrees. So it's actually more vertical than it is horizontal. <clears throat> and what that means is as you get to higher oblique forces, you actually compress more than you rotate. Um, and once you create compression into vertebral disc, it probably you um, mitigate some of that, that torque component because it's, it's becoming resistive. <clears throat> um, and yes. so the, the the most underrated muscle probably in, in rotation is the lat um, because it accounts for a significant portion of rotation um, and it's it's highly active in even in isolated rotation. And I can send you a whole lot of papers on this if you like. <clears throat> but Stu McGill kind of popularized a lot of that, that work. Um, so we don't actually do a whole lot of high force eccentric work. I think... Um, and in in a rotation that is so. Just for clarity, we don't do any high force eccentric rotational work, <clears throat> predominantly because um, yeah. if you look at the uh, in vitro stuff, I think um, around the spine, they they've looked at the amount of rotation cycles that a disc can can tolerate, and a disc can tolerate a lot in rotation, but not so much in rotation, flexion, and compression. And the more compression and flexion and rotation you have, the the higher possibility of a of some of those collagen fibers at an intervertebral disc level breaking down. Um, so from that stuff, my interpretation of that, and be it correct or incorrect, is that probably doing some high force eccentric um, rotational work is, is maybe not the best thing for the spine and longevity is 
pretty important for skill. So we, we generally stay away from a lot of that. Um, but we do a lot of high force lat work um, because it, once again, if you look at Stu McGill's work, he showed the lat to account for a significant portion of rotation. Um, and so in golf, it's the lead lat controls rotation or aids in rotation. And the, the insertion angle of that lat is actually pretty good for rotation. Um, so just as a side note. So, yeah, that's interesting. No, no, that's that's really interesting. Would you have any examples of how you would train the lat for rotation? Like I think most people, when they think of lat training, they're thinking of essentially pulling exercises, like pulling yeah. from overhead, pulling from horizontally, yeah. these types of things. But when you're talking about training it for rotation, what would that look like? So if you think about, um, I suppose the easiest way to explain it is we do a lot of rows that look like we're starting a chainsaw or a lawnmower um, where, there's, mm -hmm. where there's a high amount of kind of, reaching under and around in a kind of a rotational um, single arm row type fashion and pulling it right up and around, um, <clears throat> whether that's with a cable um, or what it is. But, but that's kind of how we've, we've looked at it. Um, and so we, we do a lot, of, a lot of that stuff. We do actually do a lot of pulling, um, a lot of eccentric chin-ups. It's actually quite a nice um, eccentric movement where you – basically jump up and with more than what you can pull up and control it down. Um, and we do a lot of that. Um, but, but like a, it's a, it's a big component of our week. Um, yeah. You're finding, you find that lat strength is, is very conducive to essentially throwing and swinging yeah. force production, I, I guess. And, and on that, actually, one of the biggest mistakes I made in my masters on reflection was that I missed the, the primary correlate, um, which was uh, between a chin-up and club head speed. Um, so I ignorantly or arrogantly um, just didn't want to believe that at the time. I don't, I don't really know. Um, and thought You were looking more from the ground-up point yeah. of view, like how much force you can yeah. drive into the ground with your legs rather yeah. than pulling with your upper body. Yeah, exactly. And, and I totally missed it. And about two or three years later, um, I reread my master's and I just went, oh, shit, I missed <laughs> I missed probably the the bit that actually I might have seen some kind of return. Um, yeah, yeah. So, so that's that's one of the, probably still one of the major correlates. I haven't checked the golf literature for a, for eight eighteen months, but um, but the lat is quite important. It's important in that first phase of the downswing. Um, it, if you you look at some of the um, is a is a kind of a landmark paper by Cal Calvaris, I think, sorry if I pronounced that wrong, um, which shows the lat con connects into the um, contralateral glute. And so when you pull the, mm. the glute tendon, the contralateral lat moves, <clears throat> and that's that's a thoracolumbar fascia connection. Um, and so as you swing the golf club and that, that lead lat, or the if you're a right-handed, the left lat's on stretch, as the, the right glute contracts to drive the pelvis forward to to create that rotation um it'll stretch the lead lap and so that's mm. potentially one of that one of those kind of like um probably probably quite important connections um for golf where the glute stretches the lat the lat stretches the glute the the right side ground reaction force is probably pty important for golf club head speed 
and it might be even more important when it goes directly to the left lap and you can pull the club down because you've created a bigger stretch but there's a there's a well-known connection there that's cool that's very interesting mike i just have one more question i don't want to take your time up too much uh it's something that i'm definitely curious about when you mentioned about rate of force development and looking at the the really early stages of muscle contraction, like you were saying, it's after 100 milliseconds is or 0.1 seconds is really when there's an exponential increase in how much peak force can contribute to the movement. Yeah. How, how trainable is very early phase rate of force development and how much of it is down to genetic things? <clears throat> uh the the level to which you can train it to or your upper limit is probably part in part genetically um, regulated and so and and genetics predominantly they they might regulate a bit of um neural stuff um and they they regulate a bit of five type stuff and and maybe a bit of tendon stuff as well and so those three factors relate to that early force window um how quick can the fiber type shorten to to pick up the tension is is um, pretty critical to getting any tension. How stiff the tendon is to transmit that um, force depends on whether, and that that determines whether it's expressed at the bone and therefore expressed at at a force plate level or whatever it is. And <clears throat> then the bit that precedes that is how quick can the the neural system turn on all that musculature. And, and fire it simultaneously at, at high rates. Um, so there's, there's a genetic component to all of that, but there there is also a significant um, trainability to it. So if you look at some of the um, SMT work, so sensory motor training work, where people have just stood on a um, <clears throat> balance pad, that's shown changes in those early force time windows, so zero to 50 milliseconds. Um, and that's been above that of what's been observed with um, some of the strength work, just in, in the calf. <clears throat> if you look at um, some of the strength work has been shown to shift those windows. Um, and and some of it is um, to do with that intent. Um, and I've, I've seen you talk about that as well on, on Twitter, um, where there's a, a high intent to the movement. And that's that's probably a neural kind of um factor and and maybe a bit of tendon stiffness <clears throat> but i guess as well in, in movement um some of that stuff is then becomes irrelevant in movement because when you're when you're looking at uh take the top of the backswing the ability to produce high force at the top of the backswing is probably not related to tendon stiffness um per se because everything's already on stretch. And so stretch, stiffness being a, a force, deformation force curve, um, so the amount of force it takes to deform the, the tendon. Well, in that in that position, the tendon's deformed. So it's, it's at a high level of its stiffness. And if the thracoloma fascia, lat tendons, et cetera, are overly stiff, then potentially you limit either the amount of force you can create because the muscle has to get to a greater length to get to that range of motion. <clears throat> or you just simply don't get to that range of motion because neurologically people don't want to go too far outside the length tension curve of the muscle. 
So um, a lot of it is trainable in isolation, but a lot of it doesn't matter in practice. Um, you've got you've got everything on stretch. Everything's pre-fired anyway, so some of the neural stuff is is then irrelevant as well because there's, there's a pre-contraction to an eccentric um, motion at a lot of those phases and where you want to create that rate of force development is concentrically and so there will be a pre-contraction there. Um, and if you look at a drop jump, people pre-contract before they hit the ground. So the neural system has already primed the muscle to take that impact. So then it maybe it's a lot of um, fiber type architecture type stuff and, and movement along with the the amount of force that the person's experiencing relative to the amount of force that they're capable of generating in that window to then stretch the tendon. So would like the practical ways to try and make sure that we're working on this in a way that transfers to the sporting movement is doing very fast movements and activities in a reasonably similar movement pattern. So I'm thinking things like fast swinging, speed sticks, light med ball throws, some very rapid band work, this sort of stuff. I think the in the movement, those those the way you periodize and plan the swinging loads are probably the most critical component. Um, if if you're doing high overloaded swing work, for example, where you do that and how you do that within your weekly, monthly, yearly yearly plan is pretty critical um where you do the high speed stuff is also critical so because you have to mm-hmm. be able to get to those speeds to induce the load um yeah and you have to be capable of the force to stop the load so if you're doing overloaded swings and you're you're totally fatigued for whatever reason it's probably likely that you'll either slow the the eccentric component of that motion or you'll dampen the motion over time and it becomes long and, and kind of soft. Um, and so how you periodize them will then determine the outcome of that, um, that training session. And I, I'm not a huge fan of the high-speed band work, if I'm being honest, um, yeah. because I, I don't actually think there's enough load there and it sort of sits in this for me it sits in this kind of weird middle ground between um not not being loaded enough and not being fast enough and so it's a a weird middle ground because it's not overly fast and there's not a lot of load um and so it it, it falls in a really gray zone for me personally but that's not to say it doesn't work um i'm yeah maybe i'm yet to find a rationale within why I do it but what I do like is have you yeah. have you ever seen the flutters on a Swiss ball where you're yeah for ham, like hamstring stuff yeah. yeah and so you can do a whole lot of that stuff with the upper body with um, that stuff where you're just oscillating on the ball and you're creating a contraction yeah. relaxation in the muscle and some of that stuff for high velocity work is really important is getting the muscle to switch off quick enough um yeah and so i i do like that stuff. that's what my rationale for the band stuff is like is is trying to have it for literally just maximum velocity contraction but if there's like i'm, I'm aware 
that there's low force. So it's definitely the velocity side of the equation I'm trying to tackle with that stuff. But if there's a way of doing that that can make it way higher velocity, I can see how that's more beneficial because like that's what we're trying to isolate. You're not yeah. getting force from the band anyway. Yeah. And and so I do I do like um I do like some of that flutter stuff, but I, I I've tried the band stuff in the past with it with a lot of people and I I I personally and that this obviously you you might do it in a, a totally different way to me. Um and so I'd be keen to to see some of that because I just haven't found the rationale and and as well, um just on that, I, I deal with people that are moving something a little bit heavier as well. Um so and, and golf yeah. I I probably might look to go that way a little bit more uh, because it's mm-hmm. it's a hundred grams. It's basically a hand plus lighter and faster. Yeah, but yeah, but at, at the moment I deal with people that are moving minimum of a four four k shot or one k discus um, at a, at a length is a is a high inertia there as well. So the the pure unloaded or light banded work I haven't found a rationale for within what we do yet, um, but. I mean, if we sat here in a year, I might be doing all band work and sensory motor training. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, but I do like the contraction relaxation work. Um, and I've forgotten his name now, but it comes from cycling where that basically the, the time it takes to relax the muscle in a cyclic movement determines the, is, is a more of a determinant of the concentric um, force output than the the contraction or the activation time, and so training that um, relaxation component of high velocity contractions is, is really critical. And maybe that's what you're doing in golf with the band work. Um, I don't know. We we just don't do a lot of it yet. Yeah, yeah. I don't. I don't know either. I wish I did. <laughs> I've got many more questions yeah. and answers, unfortunately. Exactly. Mike, that is really good stuff. I'm not going to keep you any longer. I think there's plenty there for all of us to listen back to and digest. Um, I would like you to let us know where people can find out more or if you're open to answering any questions or if you've any resources. I don't know if you've any like any uh, blogs or books or training products or anything like that. I uh, I don't. I generally generally try to stay out of the, the limelight as my, um, my general MO. I'm try to stick more to the science than the, the social media. Um, but you can find me on Twitter. Um, I think my handle might be like rotational performance or something. I, I can't remember, but yeah. Um, or you can just email can put me. It in the show notes. Yeah. At Mike, Mike at athletics.org.nz. Um, and I'm more than happy to answer questions and um, <clears throat> happy for people to, to reach out if they want to chat to me or whatever. Um, but yeah, I, I stay a little bit away from blogs and websites and, um, not overly articulate busy coach, a great writer busy, busy, <laughs> yeah bit busy coaching and studying science yeah just trying to figure this stuff out eh? that's good mike i really appreciate that thanks again for the time and we'll talk soon no problem